You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, a conversation between audience and artists intended to demystify the classical music and opera art form. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast. It's available via Spotify and Audioboom. That way, you'll hear about the latest podcasts as they become available. Be sure to follow Thoroughly Good on Twitter or on Facebook, and you'll find the blog at thoroughlygood.me. And there's one more thing to mention. This podcast relies on the generosity of others to keep it going. If you're someone who has supported the podcast already, be assured that you will receive, eventually, a Thoroughly Good badge as a measure of my thanks. If you're someone who likes the idea of receiving a badge, or indeed joining the throng of discerning individuals who have supported the podcast already, please head over to the Thoroughly Good blog at thoroughlygood.me, where you'll find a donate button, Anything you can spare would be very much appreciated. Principal clarinetist of the Philharmonia Orchestra, Mark van der Veel, has a new release out on Signum, pairing Mozart's clarinet concerto with a relatively new work by composer Joseph Fibbs, premiered a couple of years ago. I mentioned in the introduction to tenor Toby Spence's interview that I found singers slightly intimidating company because I didn't feel as though I instinctively understood them. Not so clarinetists who are far easier to understand because I am one or at least a lapsed one, one who failed to get distinction at grade 8, I think. Uh, Although, according to my university friends, I'm advised that I was subsequently very good. That's not necessarily how I remember my playing at university at all, even to this day. Maybe they were drunk. Podcast 47 sees Mark, in addition to introducing the Mozart and Fibs recordings, explain how he decided on playing the clarinet as a kid and the various people who taught him. I certainly didn't anticipate that we would stumble on a shared connection as he did so. And we journeyed through all of this, sat in the blazing sunshine outside at the Barbican, surrounded by new graduates celebrating the completion of their studies, who seemed to find it impossible to resist the temptation to toss their mortarboards up in the air and pose for pictures as they did so. A demonstration of joy, apparently. pronouncing it van der veel all the way here and assuming that there was a bit of dutch there there is there is yes. okay uh so from your father that's right and it's van der Weel because it's south dutch from brabant right uh what did he do we're cycling through all of the questions very quickly here uh, my father was a leather factor in oh. northampton originally um but he then in later life turned to lecturing in art wow where does the, where does the clarinet come from as in for you, I realise where it comes from. Um, that is quite a quite a complicated story. Great. We'll, we'll, we'll come to when you're really no, going. No, no, we're really ready now. <laughs> where, where, so if he was if he was an artist, I mean, obviously you're an artist, but you know, if he was a physical artist, where does the clarinet? Uh, no, he 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 wasn't a physical artist. Um, he lectured in arts and architecture. Okay. Um, for the University of Leicester Adult Education Department. Gracious. So again, <laughs> I. I I ask you, where, do, where does the clarinet come into your life then? Um, where the clarinet started um, was strangely not through, first of all, listening to it, <laughs> although that obviously got me hooked later on. Uh, but uh, when I changed schools, at, as in those days one did at the 11-plus uh, stage, um, and I got a place at Northampton Grammar School, um, on the first day of music lessons then... Um, the music teacher, Michael Nicholas, asked who would like to learn a musical instrument. Uh, and uh, I was in a class of 
30 or 31 boys. I was too nervous to put my hand up and say that I was interested in front of the class. I took a lot of encouragement to help me put my hand up in front of a class in those days. Um, so I was too shy to do that. I went to see Mr Nicholas the following day privately um, and, yeah, that'll be absolutely fine, he said. Uh, by which stage there was trombone, flute and clarinet left as options. I bet you didn't choose the flute. Uh, um, so, well, uh, uh, funny you should say that. The, 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 the option that I ruled out immediately was the trombone, which right. I love listening to. I'm quite glad I don't play one. Uh, um, so it was a flute or a clarinet. So we went to the Midland Music Shop in Northampton. I tried to get a sound out of a flute apart from... For about about ten minutes and failed completely. Um, And I did get a sound out of the clarinet of some sorts, um, which uh, meant the clarinet it was. So you picked the clarinet by default? So I picked the clarinet more or less by default, but it led to quite a lucky break, which I think helped me in the long run greatly which was this process you realize had taken some time by now of the choosing and so um the music teacher peripatetic woodwind teacher was completely full uh, of students by then wasn't able to take me so they looked a little further afield um and uh, uh, there was an amateur clarinet player in Northampton who was first clarinet of the Northampton Symphony Orchestra called Peter Davis, who was not a professional clarinetist. Um, uh, he was in senior management at Watney's Brewery, as it happened. Um, uh, and he agreed to take me on. And because he was an enthusiastic and very knowledgeable amateur rather than a full-time teacher on a schedule, he... Uh, was able to give me, was generous enough, I should say, to give me um, an hour a week. He was only being paid for half an hour every week during term. Instead, I got an hour a week the whole year, which I think put me at an enormous advantage. So it was, um, he he died many years ago, sadly. Uh, But um, I think that his kindness and enthusiasm uh, was what really set me up to start with. You came came by an unorthodox route. I mean, that's um, how I hear it. Uh, I Not suppo- least because your music teacher at school asked people. I mean, that just seems like another age. But a music teacher would say, what would you like to learn? That, well, of, yes, but, yes but, but, of, but of course, not only was there an hour's music um, uh, lesson every week as part of our curriculum, but music lessons were, of course, free. Yeah. Um, uh, all, the music, all the music lessons were free throughout my schooling. Um, my university education was, of course, on a grant, and uh, even my clarinet lessons during university uh, were paid for by a scholarship. Wow. Um, so, as, as you say, it was a different age, no question of loans or anything. No. My parents, of course, um, put in a, lot, a great deal of support, um, um, fetching and carrying, emotional, practical and financial... But, 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 but as you say, the, the nuts and bolts of it, the actual educational system, was in place. How long after you started learning did you, did you realise that the clarinet was for you? What was the point? Because it doesn't sound like you fell in love with it to begin with. I mean, you didn't. You chose it um, I fell in love with the look of it to begin with. Right. Because this beautiful wooden instrument with its silver keys in a red velvet case looked so fantastic. Um, that re- re- really did a- attract me to it. And watching other play it, watching other players play it uh, um, was a wonderful thing. Um, the sounds I was making to start with were irritating. I I, I, I found it irritating that I couldn't progress faster than I was. Oh, so you're Um, ambitious then? uh, So, um, no, I don't think any more than anybody else who plays an instrument of whatever... (laughs) Of whatever kind did you play an instrument? Uh, yeah, I was about to say to you that it, the thing that got me was always the smell. I, I was clarinetist. I am a clarinetist. Ah. Uh, and, and the thing that really transports me whenever I open any clarinet case is the smell of the wax and the cork. Right. I would and never that, admit. I would never admit to anything like that on a podcast myself. Are you myself? judging me? Are you judging me? <laughs> Look, just because you're a professional, go on. Uh, no, I, I find it really. Um, I find it intoxicating. All right. All right. I know what you're doing. Um, I find it intoxicating, but why wouldn't you admit it? 
Why are you judging me? What's wrong with me? Uh, I thought. I, I, sorry, I, 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 sorry. I was accusing you of going for the wax rather than the clarinet. Yeah, but there well, we are. Okay. Even so, why are you judging me? <laughs> um, did you? You don't find you're not going to be drawn on that, are you? No. No. Okay. Well, that's that's really torn, isn't it? Um, um, I think probably to to, 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 to to get back to the less dangerous question okay, <laughs> of a okay. few moments ago, um, that uh, I, I probably I'd got good marks in my grade exams. When I got to grade eight, my clarinet teacher Peter Davis um, said to my parents, "I think there's you know he's going to be quite good at this i don't know how good and i'm not experienced enough to judge but how he good took you to grade eight. Uh, he did take me to grade 8 but at that point he suggested that i got some professional advice on the clarinet um from I nearly said professional help there, but you'd have yes, jumped sir. on that. Uh, um, so, so um, because I'm not judging. Some some professional advice on the clarinet, um, and um, a lady called Janet Eggledon, um, who was a professional clarinet player, um, heard me and suggested that I go to study with Thea King, who was one of the most uh, famous clarinetists uh, yes. uh, then, da- Dame Thea King. Yes. She became eventually wonderful, wonderful player and a wonderful teacher who took her teaching very seriously. Uh, so I started going to her, and uh, a little while after that I got a place in the National Youth Orchestra um, as clarinet seven. Seven? Um, <laughs> Sorry, it's not ranking. I wasn't the last clarinet. There were oh. nine clarinets in that wow. year. Um, so I was in as, as clarinet seven in my first year of, of six years, uh, the principal clarinet in the year I joined was Andrew Mariner, who, 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 who as it happens, um, uh, he hasn't retired as a player, but he's, he's retired as principal of the LSO um, after um, so many years. Um, uh, so that's the end of an era, um, yes. really, for that. Now, according to colleagues um, in the um, NYO and in, and in the profession, um, the wonderful, creamy, dolce clarinet sound that we all know from Andrew Mariner's playing as a soloist and as first clarinet of the LSO, and which I heard for the first time um, on a January day in 1974 in Croydon. I heard him make that sound. Apparently, he made that sound on his first year in the MYO, on his plastic Boozy and Hawks Regent clarinet. So, which proves something that one might take many years to learn, but, but um, I discovered that, you know, he obviously found it out straight away, which is, it's not the instruments that make the sound, it's us. Yeah, how annoying. Um, <laughs> how really irritating. Well, that's good news and bad news. I suppose my reaction to hearing Andrew for the first time, it was the first time I'd heard a really superb clarinet sound in the same room. Um, My reaction was to want to start to sound like that right away, now, this minute. And I spent years and years practising trying to sound like Andrew, which had all sorts of um, effects on my playing, some of them good, some of them not good uh, um, so eventually I gave up and decided to try and sound like me instead. Peter Davis clearly was very good, given that he was an amateur musician because uh, he took you to grade 8, I mean that's no mean uh, feat um, he, 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 he did um, partly I think because he was what one might call quietly enthusiastic um, and he he knew when not to push and he knew when not to get in the way and just let me let me do my thing um, the interesting thing about saying that is that um, I mean I'm, I've been teaching for many years I've been a professor at the Royal Academy of Music for many years um, and if I've got a failing as a teacher it's probably that I'm not very good at the things I've just described to you what, that he in, was good at <laughs> what, as in getting out of the way <laughs> probably in keeping out of the way and, and knowing when to shut up and let them get on with it um, but he was good at that I believe
I don't want to sound like I'm sort of bitter or indeed competitive, although I am. Um, did you did you get distinction in any exam? Um, uh, yes, in in, in, in in all of them. In all yeah, of yes. Them. Which, of course, Are you sure? in those days was three, four, five, six, and eight. We didn't have clarinet, wasn't, it didn't exist in grade one in those days. How many hours a day did you practice? Oh, probably... Before school? Probably before grade six or so, never more than an hour... Um, uh, I was because, because at that stage I, I was certainly advised phys- physically and mentally probably if you're doing more than an hour you've wasted some of the some, 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 some of the hour um, and I think something I've learnt since which I try to pass on is that thinking about music and thinking about the instrument and thinking about the music that we've got to play um, away from the instrument is time very valuably spent and you can waste time with the instrument if you don't do that. I read, I read an interview the other day by Nigel Black who's head of brass at the Royal College of Music um, um, uh, where he, he, he simply said some, yeah, he was asked what advice would you give to budding players and he said think about what you're he said think about what you're going to play before you put the horn to your face oh of course we had to do that yes we did. Um, uh, I, I, I don't know if you had to. I don't know if you had to do that. I don't know if there were distinct ones in, in grade five theory. I think one just had to get a, one had to get a pass, which I, which, which I, which I evidently did. Um, I found the theory side, particularly in terms of harmony, um, quite irritating um, in in those days. I think taking care of that side of things came to me later, really. Uh, what was the? Um, I don't ask this of other people. It's only because you're a clarinetist. But what was the, what was the point in your training where something significant shifted in the style of your playing? Was there a moment? Because it was for me. You see, and I'm wondering. If that was oh, um, it was. Um, I'm, 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 I'm rather aware of saying this as we're sitting right outside the the, 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 the uh, right, no right right out right outside the Barbican, but. Probably um, the, the, the two big changes were hearing Thea King demonstrate in my lessons with her in her house in Wilsdon um, and hearing that she was able to make a certain sound which was very beautiful and which didn't just sound like a clarinet, but sounded like her playing the clarinet, which I think was a difference I'd never thought about till then. I thought a clarinet was a clarinet, and one learnt to play it well or not, but the thought of sounding like someone in particular, or someone sounding like themselves probably occurred to me for the first time then and I remember somehow being able to capture that in the room with her. Uh, did you fathom out at that moment in time what the cause of that was or what, how she created it, what, what was behind it? Did your curiosity extend that far? Or, or My curiosity come? did. I, d- I didn't find the answers then I probably didn't even occur to me that there was an answer I just wanted to make that sound Um, and I could to some extent make something better than I was used to doing when I was in the room with her and when I got home later the same day it had gone now how to capture that and I think I realised during my years in the National Youth Orchestra and 
then during my years at university that you only know how to capture that by finding a technical answer. And what was the technical answer? Sorry, I'm going to turn you um, That will take a moment or two. OK, all right. Um, um, the... the, the, the where I'm heading, really, with this, which is a story of learning over many years, I suppose, and also of mistakes over many years, is that um, uh, while I was at university, I continued to study with Thea King, which was fantastic. Um, she was a great experimenter with instruments and with sound and with music and an enormous inspiration. Um, at the same time the NYO clarinet section had been taken over by Colin Bradbury who was the principal of the BBC, BBC Symphony Orchestra for Pierre Boulez at that time um, and he had a very different and far more technically based approach than Thea did uh, in other words he would analyse breathing, fingers airspeed, voicing this kind of thing, um, it, was, it was a kind of, well, if you do this, the result will be this. And I suppose I realised that I needed that kind of approach to find the answer to your earlier question, how to capture the sound that one wants, even though our reaction to listening to somebody play is emotional and exciting. The nuts and bolts of how to make that sound can be quite technical. And that's why when I did my postgraduate year at the Royal College of Music, uh, I chose to go to Colin Bradbury because I thought I wanted one year of that approach. Thea, as you may remember, also taught at the Royal College of Music. It didn't occur to me for one moment in those days, in my late teens and early 20s, that as students we were of any particular importance to these great figures who were the great players and teachers. So I didn't talk to Thea about it. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even want to bother her with it. I, I just didn't think that we were important enough. Uh, and, and so I went to Colin. And it took me some years to realise... And that realisation has deepened, as I've been a teacher for many, many more years myself, that I probably, inadvertently, hurt her deeply. Yeah. Well, yeah. And uh, I can't say anything to her now, but um, um, it's something to admit. And um, I probably didn't really realise it until after she died, and it bothers me. appreciate hearing that story and the reason for asking is because I had a, I had a clarinet teacher for a number of years uh, and then a friend of mine uh, who was also in NYO and who knew Colin Bradbury suggested to me, oh, you should go for a consultation lesson with him. And so I went to go and meet him. I think he lived in Ealing at the yes, time. Yes, he still uh, does. Oh, he does? He still does. Uh, and, and I remember going into a very, very big front room with massive windows and a grand piano and I played some pieces to him and he said to me, I know the person that you need to go and see. Uh, and the lesson was maybe 40 minutes long, no more than that. It cost an arm and leg, sorry, cool. uh, But uh, he, was talking about, he was talking about my breathing. And he was saying, you know, you need to relax your upper body. That, that's, that's, that's the problem that you have at the moment. Um, and within the space of 20 minutes, half an hour, he had, he had transformed the way I was approaching playing. 
Uh, and that's why I was asking you about that. I didn't expect you to tell me that you had worked with... I didn't expect you to tell me about Colin Bradbury, but... Right, but I, mean, I, I, a... I, I, I remember that room in Castle Bar Road, Ealing, indeed. Yes. Right. Yes. How and it was big, strange. It? it? was big. Yes. It's not my imagination. Yes. No, it was a, it's, a, it's a large room with big windows, exactly as you remember. Um, uh, it's, he, was, uh, he was a big inspiration for me, as was Thea. Yeah. Um, and probably... Um, his interest in contemporary music, which um, continued through all his years with Boulez at the, at, the, at the BBC, also fostered my own interest, which eventually led me to becoming a member of the London Sinfonietta, I suppose. I hadn't realised that connection either. I hadn't realised that he was there when Boulez was at the BBC Sim. Yeah, uh, he was chairman like... of the orchestra with, with Boulez, yeah. Wow. Um, I realised that I've asked you far more about that stuff than the thing that we're meant to be talking about, which is meant to be the album. Um, or the release, or whatever it's referred to as. Um, I thought this was still the microphone test. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry to disappoint you. We're using all of that, um, especially the thing about wax. <laughs> well, uh, especially that bit. We're, we're definitely keeping that one in. Um, uh, I've listened to the fibs this morning. Uh-huh. Um, it's very good. It's very fun. It's one of a few concertos that I listen to and think, oh, I'd really like to play that. Absolutely thrilled with it. Did he write it for you? Yes, he did. <laughs> yes, he did. Yeah. Yes, he did. Did you ask him, or did he just volunteer? Um, uh, it, it it came about um, at the suggestion of David Welton, who was at that time the managing director of the Philharmonia, but who knew that he was going to be retiring as managing director in a, in a, in, in a few years' time. So I suppose we're talking about. Um, early 2015 or so um, that David decided that he wanted to encourage the orchestra to commission a number of concertos for its principles um, uh, which which led to um, Joe's clarinet concerto for me um, and um, the Geoffrey Gordon uh, bass clarinet concerto for Laurent Ben Sliman and Tansy Davis's um, The Forest for Horn Quartet but um, David asked me who I would like to write a clarinet concerto for me, and uh, I chose Joe immediately. Uh, um, uh, uh, Joseph Phibbs, I've known for uh, getting on for 25 years now. Um, uh, he's, he's a good friend, and I absolutely love his music. Um, he had already written uh, a clarinet concerto, which was for clarinet and strings. Um, uh, when we commissioned this new con- concerto, um, he said he didn't want to have a clarinet concerto number one and a clarinet concerto number two because that might Im- imply some judgment between them. So the shorter piece just with strings is now called Concertino, um, and the piece we commissioned is is called his his clarinet concerto. Um, uh, at the point when the commission was being finalised. Uh, the piece was going to be for smallish classical symphony orchestra, so I suppose double woodwind, double woodwind, two horns, possibly trumpet trombone, um, and would have been about 15, 16, 17 minutes long. Um, I decided it would be great to have a bigger concerto, so um, a, a concerto... 24 minutes long which is what we've ended up with and for big orchestra Um, so triple woodwind um, a large percussion section with three players harp and so on so in order to enable that to happen um, I came in as co-commissioner so that then became a joint commission between myself and the um, Philharmonia 
Um, and just after that, um, um, Pierre Hedberg, who used to be personnel manager for the Philharmonia um, and who had been appointed to the Malmo Symphony Orchestra, um, decided that um, he wanted some performances in Malmo and also to be part of the birth of the piece. Um, so uh, the Malmo Music House and the Malmo Symphony Orchestra came in as a third commissioner at that point. So it's a, it's a, it's a triple commission. Uh, which enabled us to get the significant um, major work, I'd say, that, that, that we've got now. That, that accounts for its, its size. How do you account for its funness? <laughs> I know that's not a proper word. Um, but uh, it's a, that, 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 word, it's that, 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 that word's a good start, and of course it's a double-edged sword, that. Yes, indeed. Because, because, <laughs> because no doubt part of the fun... <laughs> of yeah. listening to it as a, as a clarinetist. He's hearing someone suffer. He's uh, <laughs> hearing that uh, there, are, there are a lot of notes. There's a lot going on. Beautiful slow melodies, beautiful slow sections, two shortish but very beautiful um, slow movements. Um, it was nice to see that um, um, Paul Dry Driver, in his generous Sunday Times review the other day, likened one of those slow, mo slow movements to the um, uh, clarinet solo in Sibelius on Saga, which I love. Um, and I think that, that Paul responded to the character of that music very well. Um, Joe likes to work as I do, not as a continuous collaboration, sending little sketches asking what might work or what might not work, because um, I, I always feel if the performer is constantly badgering the composer about the piece, you end up with some compromise between what the composer's written before, what the player is used to playing. So I'd rather just get the music, be challenged by it, try to make everything work that's there, or obviously make suggestions if there are things that I think I can help with or have some kind of useful input on. Uh, but we decided basically not to collaborate until a significant amount of the work was written. So I received, after quite a few months, um, the first and second movements without the cadenza and the slow movement. So there was still a cadenza and a finale to come. Um, at which point, I remember sending an email to Joe which said, it's wonderful music that you've written so far, but you haven't written anything really technically challenging yet. <laughs> well, I got what I asked for. <laughs> I got what I asked for, as, 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 you, as you can no doubt hear. Um, and um, the, the um, uh, cadenza, which is very challenging indeed... Um, not least because it's all in sharps. I mean, it's it, it's in sort of B major and F sharp major and all that all that sort of thing. It's you know it's 
all the black notes of the Fiendish. piano and none of Fiendish and none sound. of the white notes. Um, and I wasn't sure whether you could really hear the result of that. So uh, um, uh, Joseph Phibbs did suggest changing it so it was all in C, as it were. Um, and we actually did try it like that, and it neither sounded nor felt good. So, so, so his instinct, even though very challenging to play, was absolutely right. But isn't it, isn't it, isn't it more satisfying because it is fiendish to play? I mean, I know it would be fiendish to play if well, it's in a different key. Uh, to play, but do you know what to, I mean? To, There's something to, psychological to, to about play, it. yes. Um, possibly not to listen to. I remember when we, when we did the piece in Malmo earlier this year, um, the clarinetists from the orchestra section came to look at the music and they looked at the cadenza and said, my God, we didn't know it was in that key. <laughs> um, which I s- suppose partly I, I could take as a compliment that it didn't sound as though it was in that key. Um, but all I can say is Joe's instinct as to what key to write it in was absolutely right. Is he pleased with it? Uh, I mean, he's not going to say that I, 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 I hope so. I think he's pleased that I learnt it. <laughs> um, the, the end of the piece, uh, I can say with a certain amount of schadenfreude, actually, uh, is not just very difficult for me to play, it was very difficult for him to write. He'd got the whole piece, except the ending, because you heard what impact the concerto has as it builds through it has to have a fantastic ending and that took him a few weeks to find I remember getting a, a, a phone call one day he said I've got it and the got it is a very fast passacaglia um, f- which is really exciting um, and a, a very exciting end so uh, actually I'm thrilled to bits with it good I'm, uh, the other the other thing that I want to ask you about, or really to tell you about, is the Mozart, which I have to tell you, I generally don't like. I hate Mozart. I think Mozart is overplayed, and it's loved for all the wrong reasons. I've and, come across one I'm, or two people with that problem so, before, uh, so but I'm not, not many. I'm not. Am I not the only one, or are there lots of people like me? I mean, um, that's not the question. But uh, we'll just did, did you, you say? Uh, did you say Mozart in general, or the Mozart clarinet concerto? Uh, no, the Mozart clarinet concerto actually. Right. I just feel as though it's overplayed. I mean, Mozart, yes, generally overplayed, but specifically the concerto, it, it hasn't moved me. possibly a bad way is unavoidable for clarinetists. Yes. It is still the greatest piece that we have. Um, it's, it's probably the greatest compositional voice that we have as clarinetists. Many pieces have been written that are exciting and moving and deeply satisfying, but probably don't come into that category of one. Jack Brimer described it as a piece that hundreds of us can nearly play and none of us can really play. And, and well, well, um, it's interesting that if you were to ask a number of clarinet players which are the bits they find the most challenging, the ones that didn't just dismiss that as a stupid question and not answer it, would give you very different answers. And it's probably a question of um, finding a player who's as close as you can get to being able to satisfy the melodic side of it as well as the technical side of it. 
what surprised me, there was a reason for asking that, what surprised me was that I listened to, to your recording of it uh, on the way in, because I thought it was probably best to do that, given that I'm going to be interviewing you. Uh, and I heard the second movement in an entirely different way. Uh, and this is the first time that I'd heard it. I do that deliberately. That's my way of research, by just, you know, taking, taking things by surprise, not going in too deep. What surprised me about the second movement was uh, its burnished quality. So there's a, there's a, there's a, a melodic subject that is essentially repeated over and over again in the second movement, uh, and it's treated in very subtly different ways, which I had never heard before. Uh, and it re- for me, it reached a peak towards the end of the second movement. I realise I'm being quite nerdy now, uh, and I might be frightening you. Um, but they are the subtlest chord changes. <laughs> OK, great, I'll proceed. They're the subtlest chord changes which have the most astonishing effect. Do you understand what I'm saying? Please oh, tell me yes. that you do. You do. You're oh, a fan. yes, but that's by Mozart. Uh, well, so, no, so I would challenge you and I'd say that actually I, I've heard recordings of quite a lot of recordings of it and I haven't heard that recording of it. Do you see what I'm saying? Um, I think some of that is down to you. I'm very pleased that, um, that you, you I'm very pleased that. that you say that and that you've responded to it in, in that way. Um, maybe different people will... Uh, <laughs> not everyone will agree. Uh, I'm not uh, expecting... Go to, go, no. uh, um, respond to different performances in different ways. The first thing that would occur to me, I suppose particularly as a teacher, but partly as a player, about that slow movement is, um, of course, um, young players listen to all the recordings, the famous recordings by the great players, um, but then when you play it just play the tune yes. as beautifully as you can now there's a, there's a story I'd like to tell here which you can probably probably need to cut out but, well then why but, tell me but, if you're going um, to tell but, me I'm because, going to because, because of where we are we're sitting right outside the Barbican Hall and I've played that piece um, once or twice in this hall and um, as, 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 as you may know um, from, from the Barbican the front row of the audience is very close yes. to the stage. You're looking right into the eyes um, of the people sitting in the sitting in the front row, um, and um, I tried to do what I myself suggest to students, which is just play it as beautifully as possible. Don't try to play it like anybody else. Don't try to avoid playing it like anybody else. Just shape it as beautifully and sensitively as possible and just play it to the audience. And a few bars into that slow movement, a young couple in the front row took each other's hand. And I thought, something's going right here. If it's going that right for two people in the hall then that made me very happy (laughs) Uh, so so were they on the front row yes I mean that's almost like gate crashing somebody's intimate moment isn't it that made me you mean me them or them me no you on them witnessing (laughs) that is a bit like actually you two need to get a room Um, do do you know what I mean or maybe maybe I've ruined that moment if the Mozart could do that well Okay. Sky's the limit. I think you, I think one could one could imagine. I don't know, hear Mozart cattling away as we speak. Um, I think what surprised me the most about it, though, was that uh, I don't think I think it's perfectly fair to say this. There was a delicious surprise at the end, which I wasn't prepared for. I didn't I didn't realise that was a live recording, uh, and that's uh, that for me is what made it all the more special. Were you aware of that? I mean, did you listen to it back and go, "We're using that one"? Um, I suppose. Uh, now, um, it was it was from um, a concert um, in uh, 2013 oh, okay. uh, with 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 uh, Chris Warren Green and the London Chamber Orchestra in the Cadogan Hall, and the concert was recorded for archive purposes with a kind of just in case in brackets, um, and um, Mike Hatch, the um, en- engineer of that. Uh, of that live recording, um, heard it through his headphones dur- during the performance, 
I remember enjoying it very much at the time. Um, people in the audience said a big smile came over my face as the orchestra started the introduction because they sounded so fantastic, uh, which again is a double edge. before the people in the front row which again, no, this, no, this is a, this is in Cadogan Hall. This is oh, a completely okay. this is a okay. completely okay. different performance. Uh, um, uh, uh, but so um, the lift from having this wonderful orchestral introduction from Chris and the LCO that you think right, I've got to really up my game here to keep you know to keep to keep that level up. And I remember thoroughly enjoying uh, the performance. Um, but the, the question was, of course, would it be good enough um, to, to release? Um, and it stayed on Mike Hatch's computer for four or five years. Um, and then um, when there was a chance to release... Joseph Phibbs's concerto um, we thought just to see um, might the Mozart work to go with it um, so we approached um, Steve Long who runs Signum um, and uh, as it happens Signum is the label for both of the orchestras involved both of which orchestras I'm in, the Philharmonia Orchestra and the London Chamber Orchestra. Um, so Steve Long at Signum says, that sounds a great idea. And uh, miraculously, <laughs> the live Mozart was um, good enough. <laughs> um, and um, now, some people like um, the applause left on at the end of a live recording, and some people don't. Um, I wanted to make the distinction between the fibs, which was not from a performance, and the Mozart, which was from a performance. So that's the reason for leaving the it's a, it's, it's applause a nice, at the end. It's a nice thing. It's not, it's not the first recording that I've listened to. I don't know why. Why do they throw their, their hats up in the air? What is that about? Joy. Is, it, is, that, oh, is that what joy is? Yes. OK, thanks. Thanks, Mark. Um, I, I graduated and I never wanted to do that. I didn't want to damage it. Um, uh, I've heard a number of recordings that include the applause at the end. And actually, it gift, gives... It's a rather lovely lift, I think, yes. as an audience member, uh, as a, a listener. It's rather. a slightly tricky one, as that, that how much do you clean it up? I mean, on the one hand, we decided to leave the applause in so it did, did sound live. But also, the last thing you want for repeated listening is a cough in a, in a bar's Indeed. rest. Yes. But at least in, in that way, if there is an error uh, and there's applause at the end, you can go, oh, well, it was a live recording. I mean, I, I couldn't clean it up. You know. did you but not, that, not that there was an error. Did not you that detect I was, any? No, there were no errors. <laughs> you were very good. You were very good. Um, <clears throat> is there anything else that you'd like to say that I haven't asked you, as I have run out of questions now? Um, Ideally about either clarinet or the album as we haven't got that much time. Um, I think that's probably, uh, that, 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 that's probably it. Um, there's, there's quite a nice story about conductors, yes. um, which, which I think was a, clean? Was a rather... <laughs> well, I'll tell you the clean one, probably the, right. probably the only clean story. Um, uh, the um, uh, first performances of the... Um, fibs, which were in the Anvil Basingstoke and then in the Royal Festival Hall, were conducted by Edward Gardner. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, but uh, we were unable to release um, the archive recording of the first London performance as the Signum recording, which which uh, we've often done uh, as a Philharmonia recording that we've we've released a performance as a, as, as a recording. What did um, Ed do? Uh, because oh, nothing. He oh. he was he he he, he was fantastic, uh, but he's under contract uh, with a different recording label. Right. And we were unable to release that performance um, uh, on Signum for his contractual reasons. Uh, therefore, uh, the answer was to take it into the studio, which we did just a few days after. Um, that um, um, uh, performance so we had many of the same players Um, miraculously Chris Warren Green was available to conduct it he's the uh, uh, principal conductor of the London Chamber Orchestra and was already on the CD doing the Mozart Um, so he was uh, absolutely the first choice to conduct the recording of the Joe Phibbs 
Um, and in fact, he changed his flight ticket back from America at some expense, I believe, in order to make himself available to do that. So I'm How very, very generous. I'm very that. grateful to Chris for, for making himself available um, to make that recording. Um, one, Did he bill you back? Um, <laughs> well, well um, I, 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 didn't, I didn't receive one. <laughs> okay. um, right. uh, one, one week later, we gave the first non-professional performance of uh, Joe Fibbs's concerto with the Oxford Symphony Orchestra, uh, which was at Robert Max's suggestion. Um, Robert's the, the principal conductor of the Oxford Symphony Orchestra and also principal cellist of the, of the LCO. Um, and so the lovely thing was that we had three conductors working on the concerto simultaneously. Um, they all came to each other's rehearsals. They were emailing each other about string bowings. And it was the most fantastic collaboration. Who was the best, though? They were, they, were, they were all oh, fantastic. Come oh, come uh, where will we hear you play over the summer? I'd like um, to come along and analyse your play. Um, at the, uh, 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 over the summer, um, I'll be at the Three Choirs Festival, uh-huh. playing with the Philharmonia. Um, and um, after that, um, you'll be able to hear me at the Proms, playing in the Philharmonia under Esa Pekka Salonen. What will you be playing? It will be playing... Um, uh, Bruckner Symphony Number no. Four, Bruckner. which is wonderful. Is it? I'm not sure. Now I've con- I've convinced you about you Mozart. Can, yeah, let, us right, con- let us let us let us let us convince you about <laughs> Bruckner. No, um, no and we'll then, save that for now. And then following that, I'll be at the British Isles Music Festival, which is Sue Milan's Chamber Music Festival at Charterhouse School, oh. uh, where I'll be teaching and doing some playing. Uh, is that open to the public? Uh, the concerts are open to the public, yes. But not the teaching. Not, uh, not master, they're not master. Uh, I think probably by invitation. You, you, you could <laughs> certainly <laughs> drop in. You'll be welcome I to shall, drop in. I shall see what I can do. Uh, thank you very much indeed. It's um, it's one of the more unusual locations we've used for a podcast. <laughs> uh, I generally speaking don't like other big crowds of people and other people. So I found this quite... <laughs> I felt quite anxious quite a lot of the time. But we've, we've, we've pulled through and we've made it to the end, so thanks. Great. My Thank great pleasure. You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, available on Spotify and Audioboom. To get in touch, please tweet at Thoroughly Good. You can also follow Thoroughly Good on Facebook and read the blog at thoroughlygood.me.